Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. Let the knowledge flow. Ask MAPT, episode 115. Welcome back to live pre-health Q&A with the MAPT advising team. I am Rachel Grubbs, the MAPT co-founder. I've been advising pre-meds for 20 years. I'm hosting today. Dr. Gray is homesick with a little one, so he's actually lurking in the background. You might see some chats from him, but he's got to focus on parenting right now, which we applaud. So we'll miss him, but we'll carry on. Courtney Lewis, welcome. You come to us from uh, your former job as Director of Admissions at Burrell College of Osteopathic Medicine. You've been with MAPT about a month or so now, yeah? Yeah, just over a month. So exciting. We're glad to have you here. Thanks. Favorite time of the week. Good. Cool. And last but not least, Verenia Granum. Uh, I'm having banner fights with someone in the background. I'll stop touching. So former assistant dean, pre-health and STEM advising at Hofstra, Pinkies Up, the Harvard of Long Island. How are you today? I am doing great. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. And Dr. Scott Wright is also out today. So it's just the three of us. Hopefully everyone's excited to pick our brains. We can go ahead and get started as soon as you guys start typing in questions and comments. In the meantime, uh, let's talk a little bit about the season. It's late August, so that means different things for different people in pre-meds. Can maybe think a little bit about people who are early in the pre-med process. So, Verenia, you've been advising pre-health undergraduates for a long time. What do you think if someone who's listening today is a first or second year kind of earlier or just recently decided to be pre-med, what should they be thinking about right now? Oh man. So the semester is probably just getting started. Um, So you definitely want to get yourself settled, get to know your course, your courses, your professors for those courses, um, really establish your, study skills, um, study to learn the material and really understand the material, not just to pass the test, uh, because this is laying the foundation, right, for your future courses um, and eventually for medical school. Um, so, so thinking long-term what the goal is, right, to get into medical school, become a physician, but also focusing on the small steps you can do, take right now to set yourself up for success. Uh, and at the same time, think about just enjoying your first semester, or maybe it's, you know, your second year of college, but kind of enjoying yourself, enjoying this time, um, t- taking small steps towards accomplishing your goal to go into medical school, like participating in student clubs and getting involved on campus, um, but in moderation, right? Things will ramp up eventually. So right now, just focus on establishing those study skills, getting your time management uh, down pat, uh, and then slowly building towards that ultimate goal of, um, you know, a successful career into medical school. Great. Now, Courtney, you've been advising, uh, or, you know, interviewing 
future DOs for years. It's August. If someone's in an application cycle right now, what should they be thinking about? Making sure that they're following up and staying current on what the school has going. If you have an application in and you've got your secondary in and you're waiting for interview invites or you're prepping for an interview, it's good to check their social media, reference their website, get as much knowledge as you can, especially if you're prepping for an interview because you want to go in and have questions that are going to actually add value to what you're learning on the date and show the school that you're interested and you've actually done your homework, but um, be able to maximize what you're getting out of the interview day and the information that you're obtaining so that you can make a decision if you were to get an offer. Um, And if you have multiple to choose from, that's always a good place to be in, but it makes the decision harder. And so being proactive now with that, continuing on, you know, all of your experiences that you've been doing, if you have any that are still running as you're waiting to hear back from schools, that's a good thing to be doing as well. So kind of depends on what their specific situation is, but but being proactive on, on certain things is helpful. Good. All right. Let's see what comments and questions we have. Some interesting questions coming in today. Mm-hmm. Here, I'll grab one. So Andrew says, first rejection today. It comes up as a little square, but I bet he's made a sad face emoji. Mm-hmm. Andrew, thank you for being brave and sharing that. That's totally normal. You're not the only person who's had rejections. Um, it, it happens. It's why we apply to a bunch of schools. So, yeah, that's that's part of the season. Um, Courtney, any thoughts on as people are getting rejections, what should they be considering? It's, it's so competitive and there's so many things that could be at play with that rejection. And so, you know, once the cycle's over, I always encourage people to contact the school and see if they're willing to offer any feedback, but there's things that you can be doing now. It, it takes, you know, a lot, a lot of people two, three times to get in. And so don't be too discouraged. It's not the end of the road, um, but get some feedback. Continue doing, you know, gaining experience. If if you need to look at your grades or do a post back or maybe just prep on your interview skills. And you can always sign up for MAPT. This is just a plug for that. But you get access to advisors where if we have a bit of that information, we can provide you with feedback as well. So if I can look over your coursework, look over your GPA trends or talk to you and chat and things, then then that would be helpful um, if you're looking to get a little bit more specific feedback. Um, but you can get that from the schools too and, and just work, spend this time boosting your next application, right? You have all of these months, you don't have to wait until you're rejected from every school because even if you continue on and you think, you know, I'm holding out for one last school, um, even if you matriculate into that one, this time is not wasted if you were working as if you were going to have to apply again. So continue doing what you're doing, increase your application, get it ready for next year and, and, you know, navigate what's left of this cycle too, but doable. Sorry. I just wanted to add, and it's still so early. Yeah. It's still so early. Yes. Unfortunately it's your first rejection, Andrew, but there's, seven months left of the cycle, more or less, um, yeah. if not more. 
Yeah, historically, our rough rule of thumb has been if you haven't gotten an interview by Thanksgiving, then maybe start thinking about what reapplying would look like. But a lot of what makes this this whole process from from August to April when you can be getting interviews is it's a lot of waiting. And, you know, you got to check your email once or twice a day. You got to make sure nothing's going to spam. But other than that, just trying to live your life and not fret and not think about why haven't I heard from the med schools every five minutes, right? Like limit that email checking, keep your brain occupied with other things. I'm glad that you mentioned spam because that used to happen to us quite often. For some reason, a lot of secondaries, because we're sending them out usually in batches or in bulk from our our software will go to your spam folder. So please check your junk and spam periodically to make sure that nothing is getting stuck there because it does happen fairly frequently. So that is a really good tip. And then quick question from RM. We did not ask him to say this or them to say this, but is there a way to request one of you specifically for advising? Yes. So when you sign up for one-on-one advising, you can always put in the notes of your enrollment, the person you wish to work with. And as long as they're available, we'll make that match. Um, so that's, that's uh, typically we make the best match we think we can make for you. But if you've got an idea, especially from watching things like Ask the Dean or Ask Map, where you see us all each week, if there's, Someone on the advising team that you really feel like you would connect with, always feel free to ask if you can be matched with that person. All right. What else do we have? Meenal says, how early and how much shadowing hours per undergraduate year are considered good enough? Well, Mm -hmm. Mina, the answer is somewhere between a zero and a zillion. Uh, there's no answer. We'll never be able to give you a specific number. It doesn't work like that. The reason you do shadowing is because you need to observe a day in the life of a physician, see what it's like, not just the clinical moments when they're at the bedside or with the patients, but the whole day, right? So you want to see what it's like when they're with the patients, when they're charting, when they're talking with their coworkers, when they're on the phone with insurance, you want to see that whole day as many times as you can, right? And the point is to confirm your desire to be a physician. So you're looking to see what does this look like and is this a life I would wanna live? Um, We do recommend that you get shadowing consistently. So for example, I I wouldn't want you to get 60 hours of shadowing between your first and second year of college in the summer and then never again, right? I think slow and steady is much better. But if you're just doing a little bit here and there throughout your pre-med process and you're getting experiences that allow you to reflect and journal and make notes about things that you're excited about, about, you know, qualities you want to emulate or things that you realize like, oh, that could be a pain point. I still want to be a physician, but I understand now that this part is like less pleasant than others. If you're, if you're making those reflections, then you're doing shadowing, right? So that's, it's about quality, not quantity. Emily says, when is too late to add on schools? Uh, Let's give this to our former director of admissions, Courtney Lewis. Uh, The famous answer, it depends. Um, You're going to want to do your research on this one. There are some schools that now would be considered late. There are others where 
January, February would be considered late. A good rule of thumb is to check either their website or um, websites like on the DO side, it's choose DO Explorer and you can look on that and it will have uh, for best consideration and it gives you a suggested deadline there and that will give you kind of the most competitive deadline. Look at when they're conducting interviews. Sometimes they wrap up early. If you are seeking to designate after that time, maybe every everyone that you designated initially, you've gotten answers from or waitlisted from and you want to kind of expand your options. If you're looking to do that, just double check that they're still even conducting interviews and you're within that, that time frame or within their cycle deadline. It's going to be, I guess potentially harder at that point because, you know, they've already had a queue in front of you for people that they have been filling interview slots with. They may have filled their class. And so you may be interviewing for a waitlist position or, um, or something like that, depending on how they give out their acceptances. So a lot of things come into play here. Um, but it's still doable. I had people, um, and, and since I was a private institution, you know, we were, we were a little bit open on our, how long we were willing to go in the cycle. Um, so it varies school to school, but there is information out there to kind of help you guide. I'd say beginning of the year is going to be late, but not potentially rule you completely out. It's just what they'll have available left for potential interviews if you were to get an invite and then how full their class is. So that's what you run into. Yeah. And generally, I mean, like you said, it depends, but generally speaking, DO schools tend to be a little bit more flexible about accepting people in, in the winter and even into the early spring where a lot of MD schools are going to list their deadlines as October or November now, Emily, we talk a lot about rolling admissions and how earlier applicants have better chances. But in theory, you can add on a school anytime you want up until that deadline. So, you know, when is it too late? Like it's too late when the deadline hits. But what you kind of have to think about is paying the money for the application, paying the money for the secondary. Um, the, the bandwidth it's going to take for you to write all the secondary essays for those schools. You just kind of have to weigh, you know, what we can't say for you is, how how it works for you in terms of time and money, right? If, if you've got the funds and you've got the time and you don't mind that applying late in the year might mean that your chances are a little lower, then, then go for it. Um, you know, it's always going to be zero chance if you don't apply and, and higher than zero if you do apply. <laughs> Is it necessary to become an EMT to apply? Brania Granum, address this question, please. Sure. No, Carmen, it is not necessary to become an EMT to apply. It is a great opportunity to gain lots of patient care experience and clinical experience, um, but it's not an absolute requirement. Um, so I tell students, you know, if it's something that you see yourself doing that you would enjoy doing, go ahead, go for it. If it's not something that you're interested in, then don't do it. There are other ways to be able to get patient care experience. Oops. Manjeet asks, will Texas ever open up to admitting out-of-state students? 
Well, Manjeet, uh, Dr. Wright, our former executive director of TMDSAS, is not here today, but I can answer this question. And the answer is, Texas is opened up to admitting out-of-state students now. It's just that the number that they're going to admit is always going to be very small, and that is due to the way that Texas med schools are funded. So because most Texas med schools, the ones that are part of TMDSAS, um, are funded through the Texas government, and that means Texan tax, taxpayers are paying for those med schools to exist. So therefore, under those regulations, Texas schools have to take a minimum of 90% of their class as, as in-state. Um, and that's a minimum. So we often say, oh, Texas is 90% in-state, but um, I'm not sure if I have this fact right, so don't quote me on it, but I think last year, um, Dell, so UT Austin, could have had up to four or five out-of-state spots, and they ended up only giving one away to out-of-state. So even though 90% was the minimum, they actually ended up at something like 98% in-state. Um, and that's not going to change for the schools that are funded by Texas anytime soon, right? Because it's, it's due to the way they're funded. Now, the difference is there are some schools in Texas that are not part of TMDSAS, so um, not many, but you can always look at those. But but yeah, the the it's Texas is an extreme case, but this is going to be true with most public state schools. Usually due to funding, they are going to have a preference for in-state students. And you can always look at the specific schools to see what their percentage of out-of-state was last year. Um, some public state schools are more out-of-state friendly than others. Um, Michigan and Ohio State are good examples of that. But but pretty much anytime you're looking at a public um, public school, the, t the way the taxes and the funding works means there's going to be a strong preference for in-state students. I always used to say that Texas loves Texas and they want to keep Texas students in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> All about Texas. Yeah. Leslie says, working as a medical screener and or phlebotomist at a plasma donation center with donors rather than patients, does this count as clinical experience? Oh, is it clinical? We always get one of these. Frania Granham, can you define for the audience what clinical is? Absolutely. It's any position or role in which you're directly involved in the care of another human being, um, taking care of their health, their needs, accommodating their, their care in some way. Uh, location does not matter. So the fact that you're doing this at a plasma donation center really doesn't matter. They're considered donors, but you're still caring for them as patients, right? You're a phlebotomist, med screening for um, I guess probably to make sure that they can donate, things like that. Um, so I would consider this as, as good patient care slash clinical experience. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, the, the location doesn't matter. Yep. Mm -hmm. Amy says, I got my first interview invite to LeeCom. Yay! Mm -hmm. Any ideas on how to prep for the one-way interview? It's asynchronous where they show you the question and give you a few seconds to think and record yourself. Yeah, so Amy, again, congratulations, that's amazing. I think um, when you're preparing for interviews, I don't personally see huge distinctions between the way you prepare for all the different formats. Like there's a lot of basic tenets of interview prep that apply to everything. Um, with uh, with the one-way interview, it's great that they give you 
a, a few seconds to think about it, you know, before you have to record yourself. So since it's virtual, I would say um, start by making sure that you've got good lighting, good sound, just do some basic technical prep. Um, you can always test yourself on Zoom, but, you know, if you've got a window behind you, you're going to get a shadow where your face is. So those kinds of things. And we do have, I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but we do have um, a pre-med years podcast that is um, all about prepping for virtual interviews. So I would, I would definitely check that out. And then um, in terms of prepping for the questions, I think that is sort of the same as prepping for any interview type questions. Uh, Courtney, you want to chime in a little bit about interview prep? Yeah, I, I agree. I think you're going to prep much the same as you would for a virtual or an MMI where, you know, you want to make sure that you're working on your facial expressions. You're not doing anything crazy with your hands or anything. Um, and so just you can be practicing those things, even though you can't anticipate all of the questions that they're going to ask. Doing prep in the same way, similar to being able to answer why medicine, why you tell us about yourself, an issue in healthcare, those types of things are always going to be relevant and will help you prep. But not just thinking your answer through, but actually verbalizing it, practicing orally saying it is going to be really helpful, especially when you're talking about yourself, because you can have things in your mind that you know you want to highlight, but actually having it come out in a finessed or polished way is sometimes difficult when you're put on the spot and you're staring into a camera. So I would say doing those things, practicing, looking in a mirror or recording yourself or having somebody record you. So you have the pressure of having somebody hear you in real time and then looking to see if you're making eye contact, if you're having kind of, you know, doing this and looking around or, you know, things that you need to modify from there are, are good ways to practice because that kind of simulates what you're going to be doing and, and you don't have much time in between to collect your thoughts and then give your answer. So as much of that, as Rachel was saying, tech prep and then, you know, kind of verbalizing the answers and, and pre-recordings you can do of yourself will give you a much better idea and make you a lot more comfortable for that actual day. Great. DG says, when is it ideal to get application review support? I intend to apply in 2023. I'm a non-trad who still needs MCAT and two of the common prerequisites. Uh, I, I thank you, audience. You keep giving us these wonderful opportunities to promote our services. Um, yeah, and whether you work with us or someone else, our general advice is that you should be starting to work on your applications no later than January of the year you apply. And that's... Um, that's a lot earlier than many people think it would be, right? But you know, the applications don't open until May, but the personal statement is a 5,300 essay about why medicine, and you're trying to distill this dream you've had for all these years into one concise, uh, you know, essentially single-page, one piece of paper. It's, it's a real, real challenge, and it can take months. You know, you work on it, you put it away, you come back to it. Um, the activities essays and the most meaningful activities essays, if you're applying to AMCAS, also take a lot of energy. So um, we recommend that you start after the new year. And that does probably mean, in your case, DG, that you're working on application prep while you're also finishing up some of those prereqs, while you're taking the AMCAT. Ideally, you're taking the AMCAT January or March, if you can be ready, no later than April. 
um, you know, there are MCAT dates throughout the year, but you want to be applying early for rolling admissions. So um, you kind of have to think about that January to May period as you've got a lot of different balls in the air and you're sort of taking turns working on each of them. So as opposed to I'll get my MCAT prep out of the way and then I'll start my personal statement. That's not a smart of a way to go because you just need time to digest your personal statement and then walk away from it. So you can do some of it and then do more MCAT prep and then come back to the PS. Like you have to be, you have to be prepared to do that kind of juggling throughout the winter and spring. I wanted to weigh in on this too, just because you say that you still need to take two of the common prereqs. If you, I'm not sure which ones they are, obviously from the statement, but they may be content that's covered on the MCAT. So make sure that you have taken the courses that you need to um, prior to sitting for your MCAT and not doing it in the reverse order. So be thoughtful about how you schedule yourself from that, even if it puts you back a little bit you're going to need that content potentially if it's some of the, the core prerequisites. So just a thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It just depends on which ones they are. Christian asks, hello, when should we be worried that we haven't received interviews yet? Uh, so we, we've been saying earlier, if you were listening, Christian, that interviews can happen anytime from, you know, they've been happening now for the last month and they'll continue to happen up through the spring. So a lot of the tough part of application cycle is the waiting. Um, as a rough rule of thumb, what we advise here at MAPT is if you haven't had any interview invites by Thanksgiving, that you should start to think about what reapplication would look like. Now that doesn't mean that you have to give up hope because you can still get interviews in December, January, February, March, even April. It's, it's absolutely still possible. But what you don't want to do is wait until May, go, oh, I didn't get any interviews, and then think, okay, well, I'm going to reapply. What do I need to do to make my application better? Because now you've run out of time. It's time to apply again. So our rough rule of thumb is Thanksgiving is when, again, you don't have to give up hope. It's that whole prepare for the worst but still hope for the best thing. That's when you start doing some serious reflection on your application and if you haven't already, about what are my potential weak points that I could be improving. Um, you know, so for example, if you applied this year knowing, well, I'm kind of weak on clinical experience, clinical experience is a wonderful thing that can help you earn money or you can do it volunteer. You can be confirming your desire to be a physician, just getting yourself more excited about med school. There's no reason not to be doing it now, right? And then if you do have to reapply, it's so much stronger. Now, I just use that as an example. So you kind of have to reflect on your own application and see what you think is weak. Um, as Courtney mentioned, we do those services. So you can always sign up for a session with us and we'll help you do that analysis. But also we've got a lot of great free things. So like application renovation and am I ready? Those are really great free video services that sort of teach you how to analyze your own application and see, you know, what are my weaks and strengths? What are the things that if I don't get an interview invite might've been the cause? Chelsea says, how long is, quote, too long to go without taking courses after graduating? I graduated in May 22, and I'm thinking of two gap years. I'm worried that I will have to take more courses if I wait too long to apply. You definitely don't need to worry about two gap years. That's that's my short, easy answer. That's going to be fine. Um, Courtney, you've been a director of admissions. You've seen a lot of non-traditional applicants. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, 
what's what's the concern if someone hasn't been in school for a while? Um, just coming back into rigorous coursework again. I think that most selection committees or admissions committees will will at least have a hint of concern there because we're going to throw you right back into you know basically 32 credit hours of heavy science and a lot of other things that you're going to be balancing all at once. Um, but two gap years isn't unheard of. And I'm not sure if you mean two gap years and then the cycle after you would be matriculating or a gap year and then during your next gap year you'd be applying, um, which... I think is probably more standard than doing two full gap years and then applying the subsequent cycle, which would put you out quite a bit of time. Um, I think your MCAT will affect this a little bit. It may kind of bias it depending on when you take it and what your score is. So you don't want that to get too stale. I would say two to three years is about as long as you can go without taking that in tandem. Um, and say you retake it and your score drops and you've been out of class, that's a bit of a concern. I wouldn't say it's something that's going to necessarily rule you out completely, but but think about that um, as you're going forward and you're, you're thinking about this timing. But as Rachel said, short answer is, um, you know, this is not unheard of. It's not insurmountable or anything like that. It, it only comes into play. Um, if there's other kind of things to tie into tandem where there may be some question as to your preparedness to go back into courses. Great. John says, in addition to the required prereqs, e.g. biochemistry, some schools list strongly recommended courses, e.g. immunology on their website. I just have the required prereqs. Am I at a disadvantage? It depends. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so um, strongly recommended can mean various things, right? It could mean this makes you more attractive as an applicant. It could also mean we think you'll have a better med school experience if you already have this information under your belt. And the main thing that admissions committees are looking for are people who are ready for the rigor of med school and who are emotionally rounded adults who are going to be compassionate physicians, right? So they're, they're doing this holistic review where they're looking at a bunch of data points. And one of them is what courses you have taken. So, you know, it's hard for us to say, are you definitely a disadvantage or not? Because some of it might depend on who else is applying to that med school and how many of those students took the required versus the strongly recommended. Um, Anytime you can take the strongly recommended, I think that's great. But at the same time, um, you're going to choose your school list based on a fit for you. So, you know, if you're looking at 30 schools and then you notice that five of them have strongly recommended courses you haven't taken, that can be part of your decision is do you say, you know what, I really, I have strong reasons to want to apply to these schools. I'm going to anyway. Or maybe you say, you know what, maybe that school goes to the bottom of my list. I don't need to pay that application fee and do their secondaries because I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm a fit. Um, so there's there's some subjectivity there, John, that you just have to make some decisions based on your interest. You would probably not be surprised that faculty kind of give us the the or whoever is setting uh, minimum requirements for prereqs kind of a wish list 
of things that they would love all of their students to come in with and, and what would make you strong and, you know, they'd love to have, you know, a thorough knowledge of and, and be able to build upon. And so, you know, if we went by the wish list that we got, no one would get into school because of the amount of courses that they would want on that list. But I, I agree that the strongly recommended is, is likely to help you in the curriculum and help you be a stronger student and, and probably at the strong suggestion of the faculty. Mm-hmm. Karina asks, are medical terminology certifications in Spanish give you an edge? They certify that you're not only fluent in Spanish, but fluent medically as well. I speak a little Spanish, but let's talk to our bilingual admissions advisor here. What do you think about this, Verenia? Um, I don't know that they give you an edge necessarily. I think that it's something that if you're interested in, um, you, you should do it. Uh, it will definitely benefit you down the road when you're working with um, bilingual patients or maybe non-native English speakers. Um you know, I guess it, it depends on the school. Some schools may say, yeah, it's a great advantage. Um, other schools, it may not matter as much. But I think the main thing is I encourage students to do what they enjoy and what they're interested in. Don't try to do something just because you think it's going to give you an advantage. Um, but having said that, sure, any time that you can speak another language, it's definitely a benefit. Travis says, I'm currently military and decided on a career changer post back after separation. Is the 45000 worth it for a formal post back? The match rate, linkage, and MCAT waivers sometimes make it seem so? Question mark. So the question is, is a career changer post back worth it? Again, you know, this is often our answer, guys. It depends because what I don't know is how much money you have to spare. Um, uh, formal post backs can be really great in terms of, especially for career changers, helping you take all of the courses you need to take. And, um, and like you said, sometimes they'll include MCAT waivers. Sometimes they even include MCAT prep. Um, although many people, what I've heard from people who have been in formal postbacs is they're too busy to do their MCAT prep and they end up doing it after the program's over anyway, um, just because you are essentially taking, um, you know, a lot of rigorous science at once. Um, so, if you want that structure, you want to be in a cohort with like-minded peers who are also career changers and you've got the money, I think it's great. I also think it's perfectly fine to just look up what all the prerequisites are mm-hmm. and do what we call a DIY postback. So do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Just look up the science courses you need to take. Um, so uh, I don't think you have to do a formal postback as a career changer. It's If you've got the money, it's one convenient way, but lots of people go the DIY route and that can work out just fine. Yasmin says, are you able to take the MCAT without taking physics one and two in biochemistry? Mm. Well, (laughs) Yasmin, uh, you're able to do anything you want, right? No one's going to stop you. There's no like guard at the door who's saying, show me your transcript. Show me what courses you've taken. The MCAT covers uh, general chemistry, organic chemistry, physics, biochemistry. It also covers critical reading, statistical analysis, scientific inquiry. There's a a lot of subjects that you need as well as skills that you need on the test. Um, Most people have reported that if they've taken physics one but haven't yet taken physics two, that that's, it's not always okay, but that's often okay because the MCAT 
tends to take questions, topics mostly that are covered in physics one. I would not advise trying to take the MCAT without biochemistry. Um, biochemistry is a huge part of the exam. It actually can show up in three sections, right? It's in the bio, bio sci. But the chem phys, the full name of that is chemical and physical foundations of biological systems. Biochemistry can show up there. And students have reported seeing biochemistry in psych-soch because sometimes it shows up with neuroscience questions. So uh, biochemistry is a huge, huge foundation. And I would definitely, uh, I mean, again, no one's going to stop you. But if you haven't taken that course in school and gotten an A or B and really, really mastered that material, then you're just adding a ton of extra time because MCAT is usually about content review. And in your case, if you're doing it without physics and biochemistry, then it's not a shortcut. It's going to add extra time to your MCAT prep because you're going to have to teach yourself that material before you can can finish your MCAT prep. You can always take a full-length timed practice test and see that yep. if you want yeah, to. It goes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. Safa says... Is being an ophthalmologic assistant for 10 months before application cycle enough clinical experience? Oh, the enough question again. Safa, we can't tell you whether or not it's enough. Uh, Verenia, you talked about clinical before, about what it was. Tell us, what's the point of clinical experience? It's to make sure that this is what you want to do, that you have an interest in working with patients and taking care of sick people. Um, so there is no way to quantify that that's something that you know you should always want to do right it shouldn't there shouldn't be a limit to it um Mm -hmm. so so we can't say if 10 months is enough was it enough for you to realize that yeah this is what you want to do do you want to continue to do this do you want to continue to take care of patients um it's also you know important to think okay this is just one area of medicine that i'm i'm observing uh that doesn't mean that you have to go out and find different uh like other uh environments to work in but potentially looking at maybe shadowing other areas as well. Like there's no set time frame to say, okay, I've done this. I've checked off the box. I have enough experience. You really want to prove to yourself that this is what you want to do. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, Safa, that, that, that is one concern I have. If you've only ever been ophthalmologic, mm-hmm. uh, wow, I'm having trouble with that word, assistant. It's very specific to the eye, right? So is there any chance you can get some clinical that's a little more general, you know, family medicine or ER or, you know, something that just gives you a little bit more exposure to, to more ailments? Um, you don't have to, but you may, you may find that that's enlightening for you. And then Courtney, as director of admissions, anything you want to chime on here about, it, about clinical experiences? Um, I think that it's, you know, it's medical related, you know, being in um, or working with um, an ophthalmologist as opposed to um, just, you know, kind of non-ophthalmic. But I would agree that especially in the specialties if that's all your experience is in, you kind of have a limited view of, of medicine and the other avenues. And 
And it is more comforting to selection committees when they see a little bit more global perspective or breadth. Um, And that can be through shadowing. It doesn't mean that you have to go out and get another job or switch to scribing or anything like that. If you can get four hours here, four hours here, four hours here with a physician that is in a different area, or as Rachel said, um, you know, in, in kind of a different specialty or hospital setting versus private practice and things, it, it'll likely be beneficial. Is it required? No. Um, but in your preparation and in kind of broadening your view, it would be helpful. Karina asks, is it a red flag to have multiple college transcripts? No. She says, right now I have three if I take my prereqs at a four, all four. No, there's a million reasons that that could happen, Karina, right? Like Mm -hmm. uh, you could be military, you could be working, you could, you know, you could be tied to someone who's moving for work. So you're moving when they move. Um, You might have stopped and started college because of of funds. So no, that should should never be a red flag. And honestly, I think if there were a med school that thought that was a red flag, you wouldn't want to go there, right? They... Med schools should understand that education is a long and expensive process and not everybody can do it in eight nice, tidy semesters at one institution. And and I wouldn't shy away from taking your prereqs at the four-year institution if you can. Um, I think that, that that's usually a good thing. So in mm-hmm. this case, adding on that extra transcript to take your prereqs there is, is not a bad thing. So similar question. I have good grades, but a questionable transcript, 80 over credits, 80 over credits over four years at community college. I still have some classes left before starting university this summer. Yeah. I mean, if you're starting university this summer, I think you're fine. Like, again, it's, it's not about stopping and starting. Lots of, lots of non-traditional applicants do that. Where med schools get concerned is if you've been out of school for too long, right before starting med school, Med school is so much more rigorous than undergrad, right? So, for example, in undergrad, most of us do biochemistry in 15 weeks. And in med school, you probably do it in two or maybe three weeks, right? So everything is just super powered. It's a fire hose of information coming at you. And if you talk to anyone who's in med school now, one of the things that they often say is no matter how good their study skills were in college, they had to relearn study skills multiple times, you know, based on the unit, based on the course to survive med school. So those breaks in school don't have to be a bad thing. It's just about uh, there's comfort in admissions committees seeing that you have the strongest possible study skills that you can have now because they're only going to need to sharpen at the next level. But if you're starting university this summer, then you're going to be in school again. So Um, you know, your overall grades are going to look at it and then there's going to be a trend. So you can, you know, often schools will look at more recent stuff. So make sure you're really killing it at the the upcoming work that you have. Oh, thanks, Telus. She says, you guys are awesome. I hope I can afford to hire you. And if not, I hope you can continue to use our free stuff. Tiffany, low science GPA, I completed an MS in microbiology and cell science with a concentration in medical microbiology and biochem earned a 3.6. Will this be viewed favorably by an admissions committee? Um, 
I mean, sure, people are going to love to see a 3.6, right? That's great. Where it gets a little tricky is that a lot of admissions committees, and, and Courtney, I'll definitely ch- tag you to chime in here in a minute, can struggle a little bit with understanding grad GPA because grad programs vary so wildly. Um, you know, Dr. Wright has talked about this many times before. There are many grad programs that really only give A's and B's. And if you have lower than B's, then you're dismissed from the program. So it can be very hard to assess the actual rigor, you know, because some grad programs are mostly lab-based, some are very academic, some are a mix, some have that kind of funky grading scale. So it can be tougher for an admissions committee to understand what the grad GPA means. So it, it is why typically upper level undergraduate sciences are preferred. But if if you're saying this is the trend, right? I had a lower science GPA and then I took a bunch of additional sciences and did much better. That's still going to be a positive thing, right? That you're showing that you're a different student today than you might've been in the past. Courtney, what do you think here? No, I absolutely agree. I, you know, I'm, I'm right in sync with you there. I think depending on how you ended your undergraduate, if you were already kind of on a trend or if there is a gap in between when you completed your undergrad and when you went into their masters and you know now there was some strong improvement depending on you know the master's program and things like that as as Rachel said it's there's a lot of things that we get you know kind of give us a more global perspective on how much we're going to weight looking at those numbers and what we know about it and how it ties into the rest of your application. But bottom line is, yes, if you have a lower cumulative undergraduate and or post science GPA and you get a better one in your master's, that's exactly what you want to do. That means that you spent your time well there. Just the weighting and the view of it will be different, but it is absolutely favorable, yes. So, yeah, while we're talking about trends, I will um, pop up here uh, mapped app so um, so our, our watchers can kind of see a little bit more. Let me do, I'll just do that so you guys can see the whole thing. So I'll zoom in here on uh, this GPA graph. So it's kind of funky, but when med schools talk about cumulative GPA, what they're usually actually talking about is undergrad and post-bac. So, like, here in MapDAP, you can see um, these, this GPA trend line. So the blue is cumulative. So this student has a 3.27, and that line is basically straight. But not all 3.27s are created equally, right? So it looks like this person, if you look at the green line, had a really rough semester and then did much better again. Um, you know, if I were looking at this person and they were asking, hey, am I ready to apply? it might depend a little bit on the rest of the application because these grades are okay, but not amazing. So um, one other thing you can do when you're looking in mapped app, let me zoom back out so you guys can see the whole thing, is look at this detailed cumulative GPA. So this particular student doesn't have graduate, but whenever they talk about cumulative, they're not including the grad GPA. That's a number that's looked at separately. Um, But you can also look at your class standing science GPA. So, you know, again, this is just one example, but this student has improving science GA, but senior year, 3-7 looks great, and then you see it's only five credits. So, you know, like in this particular example, just, you know, this is, I'm trying to teach you guys a little bit about how to analyze your own trends. 
here's someone who probably needs a little bit more time taking some upper level sciences. And you just, you kind of need to get comfortable with inputting all this data, analyzing it. Um, if you are in a mapped app um, uh, pro trial, or if you're a mapped app pro member, then you can also come here to the advising tab and touch base with us and ask us to look at your GPAs and we'll give you some feedback. So um, I definitely think for anyone who's, who's struggling to understand what's happening with their GPA, one of the best things you can do is calculate it just the same way the med schools will. So you know exactly how they're looking at. And there, you know, there are lots of ways you can calculate it, but it's, it's great to do it here and mapped out for free with, uh, with these detailed charts. I will kind of add in a is which is the, if you're applying for a DO school, it is slightly different where they will give us breakdowns that do include post-bac and graduate work in the cumulative. So we mm -hmm. get a breakdown of just the undergrad and it gives us a cumulative there. We get it broken down by year and then a total. And then also with post-bac and grad added in. And so sometimes they will look at that all science coursework, no matter if it's undergrad, post-bac or graduate combined. So maybe slightly different if you're applying DO route there along. Yeah. With well, and that's a really good point that the, the numbers we're showing in MapDap aren't the only ways that med schools, and it's not just a comus, right? When, when that data is transmitted to the med schools, it's not like it's a piece of paper that says here's a three, six, right? It's all of the coursework data and they can slice and dice it a million ways. Um, and, and yeah, uh, AMCAS tends to give you a very simple table and ACOMAS gives students a much more complicated one with a lot more breakdowns. But then even beyond that, med schools can slice and dice it however else they want. So they can look at just your last 90. They can take out your worst semester. They can look at just your worst semester if they want just to see what they think was happening there. Um, so in the big, big screen, big picture, it's about just continuing to do well. And if you've struggled, continuing to improve to show that you're a better student now than you were when you were struggling. Yeah, I think a lot of students automatically think, oh, well, I struggled in undergrad. Let me go do a master's that's going to take care of my struggles in undergrad. But really yeah. seeing that data and seeing your grades that way can help you decide, well, what are the areas I need to focus on? And maybe I need a postback first, or maybe I need to look at this, you know, obviously strengthen my undergrad GPA. Don't just automatically jump into a master's program because Yes, it will help. It might enhance your application, but that's not going to replace your undergrad GPA. Right. Good point. Maya says, does MAP calculate the non-science GPA too? Uh, so currently what the calculations offer are um, overall and science. Let me go back to adding to the stream here. You guys can see that, right? Um, so if you look here at the cumulative GPA, you can see it's calculating um, for each of the three apps overall, and then there's a science. So the non-science isn't currently in there. It's it's sort of like you could deduce it between the two. But, um, but again, we're just showing you a couple of the ways that med schools can slice and dice. Um, and there's always more. You could just enter your non-science courses first and see that GPA, and that kind of gives you, right, your GPA. If you really want to, uh, let's say you're starting out and just creating this account, start with those courses first, mm -hmm. and then you'll add in your science courses, and then you'll be able to see everything. Mm -hmm. Good point. Yeah. Okay. Carmen. 
Does top schools accept some C's on an application? Uh, Carmen, uh, I'm not sure what you mean by top schools. So <laughs> um, the idea that some schools are better than others is um, sort of a marketing ploy. You know, things like U.S. News and Rankings, um, you know, have, have a whole lot of sort of bogus systems. So I don't, I don't really know if that's what you mean. It's like T20 by their standards or some others. Um, generally, you want to do the best you can in every class. But um, do I know students who have gone to med school with C's? Absolutely. I've known students who have gone to med school with C's, D's, even some F's and W's. Again, it's about how, how long ago were those C's? How many were those C's? What are you proving now? If you, if you have a C or two on your application early in your career, don't give up hope. But you can't think it's just okay. You have to think, you have to seriously reflect and think, what am I going to do differently so that that doesn't happen again? You know, did you take too many classes at once? Were you doing passive studying, not active studying? Were you taking advantage of all the resources your school offers? And that's going to vary school to school, but, you know, maybe it's office hours. Maybe it's a science or math lab. Um, maybe there's um, TA classes that you can go to. You know, you have to kind of figure out what you have available to you, but take advantage of all of those resources and just reflect so that you are improving going forward. All right, it's 1.53. Maybe we're coming to the end here. Let's look. Any last questions? Uh, I've got a thank you. I've got a friendly reminder that it's a good time to tell you guys about MappedCon. So, hey, MappedCon is coming up. Do we have a banner for it? I think we do. Um, so... MAPCON is our free virtual live pre-health conference. It's going to be September 16th this year, so that's a couple Fridays from now. It is free, but registration is required, so you can go sign up at mappedcon.com. That's a whole lot of consonants, I know, but it's M-A-P-P-D-C-O-N.com. Um, so again, it's free, but we're going to have an all-day virtual event there's going to be thousands of pre-meds and pre-PA students there and other pre-health students there. And it will be day-long interactive workshops with some of the world's best pre-health experts. We've got, um, we've got uh, speakers about storytelling. We've got people from um, the, direct, the admissions systems to talk about how to navigate TM, uh, TMDS and ACOMAS. Uh, we've got a panel of med students to talk about what med school is really like. It's going to be a really exciting day. Uh, so go sign up and save your seat. Ooh. All right. So with that, I think, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I saw a follow-up question to tell us. I don't think we have to put it on the screen or anything like that. But to answer your question about taking OCHEM 1 and 2 over the summer and if it'll show on your transcript, yes, if you took them through the university, those summer courses do show up in your breakdowns and it shows them chronologically. So yes it will count and it shows yep all right so we're here every week wednesday at 1 p.m it might not always be the entire mapped advising team but there'll always be some of us we're here to answer your questions uh so looking forward to seeing you again next week right here wednesday at 1 p.m at map tv this is dr gray again closing out i hope you learned something from our session today if you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. 
track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.